Gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. We ask your blessing upon us as we study Hebrews chapter 6, that we would learn something new about you and about your call on our life and what it means to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly spirit and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the son of God and are holding him up to contempt. Ground that drinks up the rain falling on it repeatedly and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and on the verge of being cursed, its end is to be burned over. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So I'll say a few words about Hebrews 6 before we have a little conversation. And the chapter begins with an exhortation. Therefore, let us go on towards perfection. And just a word about the Greek word translated perfection. It is the Greek word telos, which means end or final destination. And so whenever we talk about perfection in this context, we're not talking about you becoming a perfect human being or perfecting your life to where you are without sin. In fact, in Hebrews, the exact opposite is true. It, it places such an emphasis on the great high priest who has offered a great sacrifice for sin and who's able to empathize with our weaknesses. And so the book of Hebrews knows that we are not morally perfect. So whenever it says, let's go on towards perfection, 
it's really talking about this perfect end that God is drawing us into. It's, it's not that different from what Paul says when he writes, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Paul also could have said, will bring it to perfection by the day of Christ Jesus, because this word means the perfect end or being drawn towards. And we've explored the metaphor of the race earlier in Hebrews. The author writes, let us run with perseverance, the race that is set before us. Where is this race headed? It is headed towards perfection. Therefore, let us go on towards that desired end. Now, that's all good enough, but then there's this business about uh, leaving behind all the basic teachings about Christ and not laying the same old foundation again. Uh, one of the things that I mentioned on Sunday that I'll say again is that I am an Anglican in terms of my ecclesiology and theology, but I am a Lutheran with respect to my psychology. What I mean by that is that Luther set up a, a very sharp dichotomy between the law and the gospel. The law is what we should do. The gospel is what God has done. And for Luther, everything boiled down to whether or not we were preaching the gospel as opposed to giving people the law. Because whenever we give people the law and we tell them what they should do, there's only a few different responses that are possible. They can rebel, they can run away and withdraw, or they can comply and be a good boy and a good girl. But what Luther noticed was that whenever people comply with the law, they always do so from a place of fear. They don't want to be punished. And basically modifying our behavior based on fear, this isn't the goal of the Christian life. And Luther said that whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we remind people of the grace that flows from the cross, whenever we remind people of how beloved they are, that then engenders an authentic response from love that preaching the gospel does what giving people the law cannot do. So all that to say, uh, so much of my preaching is about laying the same foundation again and again and laying it in different and creative ways. And so to hear the author of Hebrews say, let's stop laying that foundation, let's move on, let's go towards perfection uh, as a preacher this can kind of trigger my buttons because I understand that if we read this in the wrong way, uh, it might not be useful. So I think it's going to be important to ask what's happening in the context of Hebrews. And so let me offer just a few thoughts about that. Um, the first is N.T. Wright's metaphor of a fifth grader who still wants to sing the ABCs, right? We all learn the ABCs in kindergarten or preschool, and we love to sing them. But N.T. Wright says, imagine someone in the fifth or sixth grade uh, still wanting their whole curriculum to be singing that song. And in comes the teacher basically saying, no, there's, there's something called reading. There's something called writing. Let's move on towards those greater disciplines that can enrich your intellectual life. And so basically, in this metaphor, what the author of Hebrews is inviting us into is a, a richer expression of the faith. So for instance, if this group has been meeting for a couple of years, and our first uh, study was on the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So, and that's all we did was talk about that verse of that song, and five years later, you still want to talk about Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I might say to y'all, hey, let's leave that song behind. 
It was a great thing that we discussed a couple of years ago, but let's discuss the finer points of the faith. Let's study a book of the Bible. Let's talk about what it means to be a disciple. We don't need to kind of keep singing that same old song. And so there's a sense in which the author of this sermon is telling his community, let's stop singing the same old song. There's deeper expressions of the faith that we can move towards. The other thing, though, to note is that the early church, so many of the converts to the faith, all the converts really to the faith, uh, went through a very lengthy process of instruction prior to being baptized, often lasted years. I mean, two, three years, and then they were baptized at the great Easter vigil. And so the curriculum for the catechumenate, what was it? It was repentance from dead works. It was instruction about baptisms. It was laying on of hands. It was resurrection of the dead. It was eternal judgment. In other words, this was the curriculum one studied before one was baptized. And so there's a practical piece here where the author is saying to his community, hey, you've already done your baptismal instruction, right? Like you spent years doing that. Um, let's move on and actually live a baptized life. Let's go ahead and, and move on to uh, greater things. Let, let's move beyond the, the basic teachings that you received. And let's talk about what it means to move on towards perfection. Let's look at the ins and outs of discipleship in your daily life. So um, I'm going to give you a turn to kind of discuss and, and to reflect on how you read this. But I think there is a way of reading this whole, let's leave behind the basic teachings there's a way of, of understanding this verse without giving ourselves permission <laughs> to leave behind the basic teachings of the faith, because I've been at this for a very long time, and I don't know about you, but I still have to return on a pretty frequent basis to the very basic reality of the faith, which is that my sins are forgiven and that my sense of worth and belovedness isn't tied to what I do but rather to what God has done. This is very basic gospel proclamation. I'm 41 years old. I've been a priest for 15 years, and I still have to return to it on a weekly basis. So my guess is that you need to return to it as well. Um, in verse four, there's all this business about how hard it is to restore again those who have once been enlightened and have shared in the Holy Spirit, but then have fallen away and have crucified again the Son of God. My sense in reading the New Testament is that a lot of what the early church dealt with, we read about this in Paul uh, as well, uh, and definitely in First and Second John, are a lot of uh, preachers who speak on behalf of Jesus, but don't represent the values of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that these are wolves and sheep's clothing. Um, they look pleasant on the outside, but inside they're ravenous wolves and they rip people apart. And so one of the things that's just a given in the New Testament is that a lot of times what preachers and writers have to do to keep their community safe is protect them, not only from the outside world, but from other preachers who speak uh, in the name of Jesus, but who don't necessarily um, reflect and manifest Jesus's values. My guess is that you can think of some people in today's world, right, who wear the Christian badge, 
and you look at them and say, your faith is radically different from mine. There's something about how you inhabit your faith that is radically different from what I see in Jesus and from what I know to be true about my own life. And, and the author then reminds this community that you will know them by their fruits, right? So all this business about ground drinking up the rain and producing a good crop as opposed to thorns and thistles, this is no different from what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And that ultimately, if we want to know the authenticity of someone's faith, we don't need to look at what they say. Rather, we need to look at the impact of their life. Is their life bearing good fruit? Now, how do we define that good fruit? Well, I mean, I think Paul gives us a really good list in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, and self-control. Uh, if those things are manifest in people's lives, then that's that's a good sign, I think, that the Holy Spirit and not some other worldly spirit is operating in their life. And so there's a there's a big warning here about falling away. And we can discuss whether or not this is a preacher kind of being a little negative with this community, trying to warn them to not fall away. He's nervous that they're going to fall away. One of the things that we discussed uh, our first session on Hebrews is that part of the context of this book is a community that is A, very discouraged, very beaten up, very emotionally vulnerable, and then B, Remember, um, there's uh, at least a small portion of this community who might be tempted to return to uh, Judaism and to this emerging rabbinic Judaism that's springing up simultaneously with the Christian church. And so the author's concerned that, that they're going to leave, that they're going to leave for Judaism, that they're going to leave because they're discouraged, that they're going to leave because the persecution is is too strong. I mean, he's scared. And so he is now warning them about the, the perils of, of falling away. But he, he almost catches himself in the act. You know, he's kind of getting kind of negative. And by verse nine, he does a little autocorrect when he says, even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. So he does a little corrective. He basically says, you are my beloved, and I'm very confident that none of this applies to you. And so there's a little bit of a, a corrective here. But then again, <laughs> verse 12, uh, he warns them against becoming sluggish, uh, and he tells them they need to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises and then he draws on that a great example of, of Abraham and God's covenant to Abraham and how Abraham was able to patiently endure and to obtain the promise. And this then becomes our model to imitate in the same way that Abraham believed God and went on this journey uh, in the same way that he left the land of Haran and went on towards perfection, i.e. the perfect end God was drawing him to go on. And, and Abraham was able to patiently endure when things were tough and things were tough for Abraham. Remember, uh, for 25 years, he was promised a son and Sarai got older and older every year. And it wasn't until Sarai was 99 years old and Ab Abraham was 100 
that they finally were able to conceive and have Isaac. And so Abraham had a lot of patient endurance to go through. He had a lot of moments when he was probably tempted to become sluggish, as it says in verse 12, and fall away. Uh, but his life produced a, a good, useful crop. He patiently endured. And the author is urging us to do the same thing and to remind us that all of this is guaranteed by God's promise, uh, that God has sworn by himself to make sure that the journey ends well and that we are people who are invited to have a hope. And in verse 19 and verse 18 prior to that, the whole chapter shifts to seizing the hope set before us, a hope that we are told is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and a hope that enters the inner shrine. It, it is a hope that allows us to boldly approach the throne of grace. And um, a word about the idea of hope as an anchor of the soul. Uh, I like what Julie pointed out on Sunday in our study, how an anchor keeps something from drifting away. And I didn't really notice this the first time I, I read Hebrews 6, that all this talk about not drifting away, not falling away, not becoming sluggish, not, you know, just drifting away, uh, as it says in chapter two. Uh, here, we're told that what's going to keep us steady is our hope, not our effort, not, you know, not anything that we do. It's ultimately just hoping and keeping our eyes on Jesus, who has entered that inner shrine on our behalf.